Hello and welcome to News Hour from the BBC World Service, coming to you live from London. I'm Julian Marshall. Later in the programme, we return to the scene of the horrific attack on the mosque in Egypt a week ago. The mosque has been renovated. Uh, no sign whatsoever of the bullet holes or the spots of blood that were covering the carpets and the walls. And later we'll hear from uh, Zimbabwe's new information minister on an orderly transition of power after the resignation of Robert Mugabe and um, what he claims is Zimbabweans' love for the military. But we begin in the United States and the latest development in the ongoing FBI investigation into possible collusion between the Trump election campaign team and Russia. And the guilty plea entered by Michael Flynn, President Trump's former national security adviser, to charges that he lied to the FBI about contacts with Russia. Mr Flynn, you'll recall, was an early supporter of the Trump presidential campaign and a vocal critic of Hillary Clinton. We, we do not need a reckless president who believes she is above the law. Lock her up. That's right. In February this year, after less than a month in the job of U.S. National Security Advisor, Michael Flynn resigned after it became clear that he'd misled the Trump administration about his contacts with the Russian ambassador. The contacts took place before Michael Flynn was in his post. It's against the law, though, for private citizens to conduct diplomacy. In March, it emerged that Michael Flynn wanted immunity from prosecution in return for saying what he knows about Russian involvement in the US election. Today, he appeared in court to answer new charges of lying to the FBI and pleaded guilty. Yes, sir, the retired three-star general and former military intelligence chief said when asked in court if he wanted to plead guilty. This was the sound of Michael Flynn going into court in Washington, D.C. General Flynn, did you reach a plea deal with the special counsel? Sir, did you reach a deal with the special counsel? 80 minutes later, this was the sound of him leaving. Lock him up! Lock him up! Lock him up! Convicted criminal! Criminal! Lock him up! I've been speaking to James Grimaldi, an investigative reporter for the Wall Street Journal, who's been looking into Michael Flynn's background. I put it to him that Mr Flynn's court appearance today must have been humbling, if not humiliating, for the general, especially with those calls from the crowd of lock him up as he left the building. Oh, absolutely. I mean, what an ignominious fall it is for a former army general, someone who is in line to be the national security advisor, in fact, served that for several weeks in the Trump administration, now to be pleading guilty to a felony of lying to federal officials, law enforcement officials, that's really quite, quite a fall. So why has it come to this? Well, he was interviewed in January by the FBI, which has been looking into, as you know, Russian meddling in the U.S. election. And he lied uh, specifically about two things, both involved uh, contacts that he had with the Russian ambassador 
Ambassador Kislyak from Russia. One involved sanctions that the United States had imposed in the Obama administration on Moscow for its meddling in the U.S. election, and the other involved a United Nations Security Council resolution that the United States and Mr. Flynn were asking Russia to either veto or delay. The White House sounding very confident after Mr. Flynn's uh, guilty plea. Nothing implicates anyone at the Mr. Flynn, it said, and uh, also this doesn't lead back to Mr. Trump in any way, shape or form. Well, the first statement is certainly accurate. The second statement, we don't know, because we don't know what evidence Mr. Flynn has. And that's what's missing from the White House statement is the overall context. And let me uh, enlighten you a little bit. He pleaded guilty to one single charge, yet it appears the FBI had him on a whole series of, of potential violations they could have indicted him on. By giving him, uh, essentially uh, letting him off easy with a relative relatively lenient uh, guilty plea, there is a great expectation that he's provided some evidence, possibly testimony, maybe documents that would implicate surely other bigger fish in the Trump White House or in the administration. Otherwise, I don't think you would see just a single charge today. You would have seen more charges. In fact, I understand that there are already court documents that uh, point in that direction, that uh, Mr. Flem was directed to do what he did by those above him in the White House. That's right. There has been some suggestion of that. And in fact, there are references to presidential transition team officials in uh, one of the court documents. We also know the Wall Street Journal previously reported that Jared Kushner, the son-in-law and close aide to President Trump, has been the subject of the FBI investigation, which they are looking into his contacts with foreign officials during the transition as well. We know he has been interviewed as well by the FBI, and uh, I'm sure that his veracity will be tested as we move forward in the investigation by the special counsel. And the Russia question, is it, do you think, still debilitating the Trump administration and uh, frustrating its attempts to uh, get anything done? Well, I'm not sure that's what's really frustrating their attempts to get things done. I will say today it looks like their tax plan is going to pass in the Congress. The Senate looks like they have enough votes. In terms of what's going on, I'm not sure that you could say that, you know, a lack thereof or a failure to accomplish any part of their agenda is necessarily because of distractions from this agenda. It could be, you know, that we have a, a president who doesn't have a lot of political experience. We're seeing some difficulties in the State Department and probably a transition there. I think we have both a chemistry problem and, and maybe some difficulty in running the agency by Rex Tillerson, who was appointed to do that. We have many, many openings in the State Department. So I think that uh, any problems that there may be with accomplishing their agenda can't be solely assigned to this particular investigation, although clearly it would be a distraction for any administration. That was uh, James Grimaldi of the Wall Street Journal. A week ago in Egypt, more than 300 people were killed as they attended Friday prayers at a mosque in the Sinai Peninsula. There were explosions and the attackers then fired on worshippers as they fled the mosque. 
The Sinai is a region of Egypt where the military has been waging a long-running campaign against a local Islamic State group, and witnesses of the attack and the authorities say some of the militants were carrying the IS's black flag. At the time, this woman in Cairo was among many who expressed anger at what had happened in Sinai. If just one person dies, that's unfair. It's unfair what's happening to the Egyptian people. It's unfair for our children, siblings and families. It's unfair for a person to die holding his son on his arm. Did God order this? Where is the faith, religion and Islam that they call for? A week on from the massacre, there have, though, been uh, prayers again at the mosque in Rauda village. I heard more from the BBC's Sally Nabil in Cairo. The mosque was packed with people, a lot of government officials, uh, a couple of ministers, and the Grand Imam of Al-Azhar Mosque, which is the highest religious authority in the Sunni Muslim world, and a a lot of security presence, uh, tight security presence, of course, and the prayers were broadcasted on national TV. It seems that the government want to send the public a message of assurance. Life will go on. They want to send a message of clear defiance to the public, and they have repeatedly said we are going to retaliate for the victims who lost their lives in this mosque a week ago. And what was the message from from the cleric who gave the prayer sermon? He referred to the victims as martyrs, of course, and the Grand Imam of Al-Azhar, he gave a speech as well after the prayers, and he referred to the militants as cancer, and he called on on the government to retaliate for those who are killed, and he also asked the local people to support the authorities. So it was just one clear message of strength and of defiance. And before the prayers, I mean, a few days ago, the Egyptian president, he asked his troops, both the army and the police, to try and restore law and order to this restive peninsula within three months only. And for many people, this seemed like an unrealistic time frame, really. I mean, how aware are Egyptians of of what is happening in the Sinai? Obviously, this uh, massacre attracted massive headlines. But um, day to day, week to week, are, are people aware of the military operations there? Sinai has been living, especially northern Sinai, has been living under a total media blackout for three or four years now. No media organizations are allowed into the area. It is like a closed military zone. Last week's attacks was a special thing because a lot of people were killed. The scale, the death toll was unprecedented. So a lot of people was following the news and the government was trying to give out some information. But generally speaking, if we speak about northern Sinai, the only way you can know what's happening is via the military statements we are getting from the army every now and then. And just some accounts by social media users who live in Sinai. Other than that, you get absolutely nothing. And if you happen to report a story which is different from what the army is saying a journalist might end up in court-martial. Islamic State have yet to say that they were behind the attack, Sally, and do you think that is because of the the hostile reaction that there has been to the massacre? A lot of people are saying so. I mean, I've been talking to a lot of analysts and experts over the past week, and they say 
It is the first time that the militants have targeted worshippers inside a mosque. They, they have always targeted police and army forces as well as Christians, but it is the first time ever to target fellow Muslims inside a mosque. And this has backlashed because the response to this attack was absolutely negative, whether inside or outside Sinai. So perhaps this is why the, the IS-affiliated group, which is called the Sinai province, is a bit hesitant to claim responsibility for the attack because it's going to lose a lot of local support which it depends on for survival and according to testimonies we've been getting from eyewitnesses over the past week who have been eyewitnesses have been talking to Egyptian prosecutors, many of the assailants who attacked the mosque were raising the black flag of the so-called Islamic State. That was the BBC's uh, Sally Nabil speaking from the Egyptian capital, Cairo. Coming up, the men from the Pyrenees who are going on a hunt to kill the bears that are thriving in the region. No! Montagnard Ariège! A video delivered Al-Qaeda-style to the media a few weeks ago, featuring 20-odd armed men in battle fatigues, their faces hidden in black hoods. We're entering into active resistance to the agents of the state. We declare the bear hunting season open. That report in full later in the programme. A reminder, though, of our headlines this hour. President Trump's former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn has pleaded guilty to lying to the FBI over alleged Russian interference in the U.S. elections. And there have been violent protests across Honduras ahead of the presidential election result being announced. This is Julian Marshall with NewsHour Live from the BBC in London. It's just over six months until the finals of the Football World Cup kick off in Russia, but now we know who will be playing who, at least in the group stages. Uh, the draw has taken place at a ceremony at the Kremlin in Moscow with the uh, 32 qualifying countries divided into groups of four. They'll be playing at 12 venues across Russia, but aside from the prospect of some tantalising clashes on the pitch, the question, as ever, ahead of such tournaments... Will the stadiums be ready in time? Sarah Rainsford is in the Russian capital. There are a a few issues still outstanding. I mean, I've been around half of the World Cup venue cities and I think the most problematic place is Samara. Uh, There, the stadium is massively over budget and it is pretty far behind schedule. Uh, There are problems and issues, I think, in Kaliningrad too, where there's uh, a stadium that's being built in the middle of a swamp and that's, uh, again, behind schedule over budget again. Um, But the the assurances that we've had and the, uh, I think, the... Uh, suggestion seems to be that these places will be ready, that Russia is going to pull out all the stops, that uh, whatever happens, this will go ahead and the stadiums will be finished on time. And I think that's because this is such a massive deal for Russia. It is a prestige project for President Putin. This is uh, very much about uh, Russia showing what it can do and trying, in a sense, to kind of counteract the the bad PR, if you like, that it's been getting in recent months. Uh, It wants to show its positive face. It wants to show its friendly face. Uh, to the world. And so it really does want this World Cup to be a success. And Russians, are they excited at the prospect of this tournament? 
I think excited might be a bit of a strong word for it just yet. Um, they're certainly looking forward to it. Uh, Russia is not the biggest footballing nation on the planet. Certainly the Russian team is not the best team. Uh, it was and is the, the lowest ranked uh, of all of the 32 countries taking part. And that's the first time that a lowest ranked country has been a host country for a World Cup. So, uh, you know, it, it, it's got a decent group. It, it's got a chance. But uh, in terms of football, as I say, Russians not wildly excited. But I think they recognise the importance of this. There's a lot of people here uh, who do feel that, that Russia gets a bad press. They do feel that people don't really understand Russia and they do kind of see this as a chance uh, to present uh, a different kind of country and a much broader picture of Russia than perhaps is what people hear about when it's all about politics, about sanctions, about meddling in elections, about Ukraine and of course the latest uh, big issue, doping in sport. They want people to start talking about culture, about music, about fantastic architecture, about about the huge scope and scale of this country and, and focus on that and on the football instead of uh, some of the other stuff. But uh, people will inevitably be talking about security and possibly even uh, safety. I mean, Russian hooligans have gained uh, a somewhat unsavoury reputation when the team plays abroad. They have, and I think this is going to be a massive test for Russia. I mean, I'll put my neck on the line and say I don't think there's going to be a major hooligan problem at this World Cup. I think uh, Russia has come round to recognising that what happened in France uh, is a problem and that there is a hooligan issue here, although they, they denied that for a long time. They now say, yes, there is a problem, there are some bad apples, but we are taking measures to ensure that it's not a security issue at the World Cup. And there's a blacklist, uh, those who are known hooligans are on the blacklist. Uh, those hooligans from abroad who might have been thinking of travelling to Russia won't get in here. There will be a very heavy police presence. And I, I've been to football matches a lot here in Russia. Uh, and for example, when Liverpool came to play not long ago, playing here in Moscow, uh, the fans were escorted from the ground all the way to the metro station by a huge number of police. So Russia takes security seriously. And I think the chances of running battles between hooligans in the streets are, are very slim. That was the BBC's Sarah Rainsford in Moscow. Well, the 2018 World Cup will see two nations playing in the finals for the first time. Iceland, a country of 300,000 people, and Panama. We brought together sports journalist Brynja Ingeorgsson from Iceland and Alex de Silva from Panama to Brynja first. How is he feeling after the draw? Many call it uh, the group of death, <laughs> but uh, I don't agree with that statement. Uh, yes, it's pretty hard. We, of course, did not want to face Argentina or Nigeria. And Croatia, of course, we were getting pretty tired of uh, playing against them. It's a great team, but we know their weaknesses, and we can't say the same about the other two. And uh, Alex, Panama up against uh, Belgium, England, Tunisia. Yeah, obviously for Panama, any group is going to be very, very hard. It's our first World Cup. But when you see two European nations, uh, it makes it obviously more complicated. But uh, to be honest, the whole idea of facing England, uh, a world champion, obviously puts the spotlight on Panama, which is something we, we really want. Being in a World Cup facing uh, such a nation, uh, it gives us this, this level of superiority. So it's, for Panama, it's very, it's very hard. But I think it's just a win-win situation regardless for Panama. But uh, Brynja, you could give um, Alex a few tips about facing England, surely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, 
it was it was a great game uh, against England in the European Championships. Uh, nobody expected it. Certainly, we did not expect it because we were always used to um, maybe what we can call the failure in recent years. We always got our hopes up. It ended up with everybody crushing our dream. But finally, we made that dream happen, and we are just keeping on making that dream happen. Alex, um, Russia's a long way from Panama. Would you expect many fans to make the journey? Uh, not really. To be honest, it's it's quite expensive for for a country. I expect uh, I don't know maybe three thousand Panamanians that will will be able to go. It's a historic moment for for a country. Uh, just to think of of hearing our national anthem when we play Belgium in the in the, in the country. It's really something we we a lot of people did not expect. We're obviously a country that our first uh, sports are baseball, boxing, a little bit of basketball. Obviously, football is is getting a lot of attention. So. It's far away and rather expensive. But not so far for Icelanders, uh, Brynjard, to travel to Russia. And uh, Icelandic football fans um, travel big time, don't they? Yeah, we uh, travel all the time to see our sportsmen and, and women play. And can we expect to hear in Russia that uh, haunting and uh, somewhat intimidating, some would say, chant from the uh, Icelandic fans? Yeah, it became pretty popular uh, <laughs> the thunderclap or the viking clap i don't know your pronunciation of it but uh, we call it vikinga clapit it's the atmosphere at the stadiums when we are performing it is amazing and for those maybe not familiar with it um, are you able to give me a rendition on your own a rendition of the viking clap yes we usually have our drummer called Joey Drummer who is always uh, on the field we uh, then stamp our hands together and uh, do that uh, hoo sound when I'm here alone uh, in this office, uh, <laughs> it will be kind of weird, so... Uh, Better with a cast of thousands, you say? Yeah. And Alex, does um, Panama have something similar, or a, a distinctive chant at football matches? Uh, as popular as the Icelandic, I believe not. Our our fans, uh, they're, they're probably working on something to to get uh, this recognition. But the whole culture of football is something. Remember, we we started our our professional league in 1988, so soccer is uh, football is pretty new in, in Panama. But uh, believe me, they've been working something. Well, our fans are called the Red Tide, La Marea Roja. So uh, I believe they're working on on some some chance to remember this historic event, uh, uh, Russia 2018. formidable sound of the Viking clap ending that discussion with uh, sports journalists Alex Da Silva in Panama and uh, Brynja Inge Erlsen in Iceland. Um, a reminder that you can listen to Newsa whenever you like. we got two editions a day. You can find the latest online at bbcworldservice.com. Better still, sign up for our free download. Just search for uh, BBC Newsa podcast. Do stay with us, though, for the moment. A lot more to come. Coming up next, we hear from Zimbabwe's new information minister. But first, our regular look at the world of business. And the Chinese capital is in the midst of a massive social upheaval. Entire neighbourhoods are being levelled because some areas are seen as too ramshackle to be modernised. But many thousands of poorer residents have also been told... They're now no longer welcome, prompting accusations of heavy-handed population control and social engineering on the part of the Chinese Communist Party. 
Our China correspondent Stephen McDonald witnessed a Beijing suburb in the process of being torn down. This is the sound of the Chinese capital transforming before our eyes. Whole city blocks where poor itinerant labourers once lived and worked are being knocked down, and Chinese families who drifted in over the years from the provinces without Beijing residency papers watch as their lives here crumble before them. One resident of Shihongmen sums up what's happening in this neighbourhood on the southern outskirts of the city. Non-Beijing is all being cleared out. The government has no resettlement plan. We have nowhere to buy food or drinks and no heating. These people are effectively being forced out of town. I walk down the streets of Shihongmen and the shutters have been pulled down on every single shop. Hundreds of them. It's the same with nearby schools and other services. It's become virtually impossible for people to stay here. This is all bound up in Beijing's gentrification drive. Somebody in power has decided that certain neighbourhoods, especially those with many street vendors, look shabby and out of place in a modern metropolis. The transition started in the city months ago, but officials have now rapidly escalated the process. An area larger than 10 football fields has already been flattened. This is seen as a way of controlling Beijing's ballooning population. It's also about the type of people who can live here. Official local government documents have called for the need to clean up this messy city and get rid of the so-called low-end population. And yet we still find residents, even as they're being kicked out of their homes, saying that the Communist Party must know what it's doing. The government has its headaches and workers have theirs. I'm not saying they're wrong, definitely not. The government has its policy, it must be good. The government will find a solution. They've already said they'll fix this. As she says this, one of her neighbours laughs. And yet another small truck drives away loaded up to the brim with bicycles, bedsheets, cupboards and tables. They're leaving in their thousands, heading back to the provinces and an unknown future. That report from our China correspondent, Stephen MacDonald. You're listening to News Hour from the BBC. I'm Julian Marshall. And we go now to Zimbabwe, where it became clear today that the removal of President Robert Mugabe 10 days ago did not herald a new dawn for the country. Mr Mugabe's successor, Emerson Menengagwa, who was installed as president after the intervention of the military, has unveiled his new cabinet. Many long-serving and unpopular figures from the governing ZANU-PF party have retained their jobs while two senior military figures have been given ministerial posts. Speaking to Nusa, the spokesman for the opposition MDC alliance, Welshman and Kube, described the new cabinet as a disaster. What appears to have happened here is that the military generals who engineered the coup, instead of basically going back to the barracks, they have shared it off 
their military fatigues and dressed in suits now and are running the government as they were running during the few uh, weeks of the coup. But also clearly it's a continuation of the old ZANU-PF, which uh, has always been a quasi-military institution as a political party. Clearly what has happened is far worse than the lowest common denominator of our expectations. Opposition politician Welshman and Kubi, and I've been speaking to Chris Mudzvangwa, the newly appointed information minister. He's also a long-serving member of ZANU-PF and head of the War Veterans Association. So what does the new cabinet line-up tell us about the direction Zimbabwe is now travelling in? The main point, obviously, is the speech of the president at the inauguration day. He wants to deliver on the economy of Zimbabwe, which has been real degraded by incompetence and sloth and uh, avarice and kleptocracy. So that's his focus. And the team which is assembled, it includes some technocrats, includes some people who came from the mining sector. It includes, of course, elements from ZANU-PF who have been there before. And, uh, you know, some two generals who, you know, one of whom delivered a a resounding agricultural success to the country under the command uh, uh, agriculture you know, emblem last year, you know, the first time Zimbabwe is food self-sufficient. So I think it's been more or less looking at people with the certain expertise in their various fields. But Mr. Mutfangwa, you must have been aware of the dancing and singing on the streets of the capital, Harare, on the day that uh, it was announced that Mr. Mugabe had resigned. And there was a real expectation then that his Uh, removal from office would signal a new era for Zimbabwe, a break with the past. But this new cabinet lineup hardly represents, does it, a break with the past? Well, we've got to bear in mind that I'm the one who was uh, central to the organisation of the of the people of Zimbabwe, you know, and, and they, they, they resonated they resonated with the message from the war veterans. And I was the chairman until my new post today as a minister of information. So I, I exactly know the pulse the, the of the of the Zimbabwean population and I'm delighted that you 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 point out to that. But as I've indicated before, we are very procedural country and even the way things were done to remove Mugabe, it was done not in a haphazard methodical way. So, you know, he is, the president has to work within the confines of the constitution of Zimbabwe and the elected pool of MPs, which will go back to 2013, 2014, he can't go beyond that. If there are people who are, who are, who are desirous of serious change, the electoral process is going on now. Yes, that will be the occasion when the people of Zimbabwe can do away with people whom they don't like. I mean, you and uh, others were very keen to stress at the time of the military intervention that it was just that, uh, that it was a, yes. a limited action to get uh, a, a change at the top and it eventually resulted in the resignation of President uh, Mugabe. And yet you have two senior military officers in the new government. And uh, that is obviously going to increase the perception that the military have increased uh, their power in Zimbabwe and that this is a politico-military government. I think that's a misnomer because uh, 
you know, he has got only the discretion of adding five people out of, uh, that's the constitutional provision, only five people. So he's well within his constitutional mandate to choose two military people. Uh, and the fact that General Kelly is part of President Trump's team and, or, or Flynn was part of Trump's team did not make the, the American government a military junta. So I think people are just overreacting. No, no, no. We know we should not use, you know, a few errant prejudices when the population of Zimbabwe love their military. So what is um, President uh, Manangagwa and ZANU-PF going to do in the coming months to uh, make uh, him, make the party more electable? Uh, because this was an opportunity, wasn't it, for ZANU-PF to rebrand itself, uh, to become a much more electable uh, party, instead of which... Um, Zimbabweans just see more of the same. No, I think I think your your view is misplaced. The Zimbabwean people came out in their thousands when we, the war veterans, I called them out within 36 hours, and they came out in their millions in one of the most disciplined matches the world has ever seen. Two million people walked to the streets of Harare and Blawayo, and no window was broken. This is the Zimbabwean way of doing things. This is the Zimbabwean way of doing things. So we are a very orderly society. We are going for elections, and the, the, the president of the republic will be judged more on what he delivers on the economic front. Look, we Zimbabweans, we have gone to another new page. We are on a new page. We just want people who come quickly to engage with us. That's what we want. That was Chris Mutsvangwa, the newly appointed information minister in Zimbabwe's new government. Now, reintroducing wildlife that has disappeared from some of Europe's more remote areas has become a popular idea, at least for some. Take the French. They began reintroducing bears to the Pyrenees mountain range 20 years ago. Uh, They brought nine brown bears from Slovenia. Well, since then, those nine have turned into 39. But an armed clandestine group is threatening to wipe them out again. From the Pyrenees... John Lawrenson. A video delivered Al-Qaeda-style to the media a few weeks ago, featuring 20-odd armed men in battle fatigues, their faces hidden in black hoods. We're entering into active resistance to the agents of the state. We declare the bear hunting season open. The police have opened an investigation. Up in his mountain village of Oustou, Mayor Alain Servat points out of his window up the valley to where he says he saw a bear with two cubs. He won't comment on the anti-bear commando, but has launched an anti-bear initiative of a different sort himself. He, and now he says 200 other mayors, have declared their municipalities no-go zones for bears in order to show that it's not they but the government in Paris that introduced the predator that will be responsible if and when a bear kills someone. They showed me a a pile of papers, I'd say that's about four centimetres thick, a couple of inches. That's an impressive number of dossiers, each one a bear attack on sheep. 
230 bear attacks, says Selvat. 400 sheep killed just in this little corner of the Pyrenees. A 30 to 40% increase on last year, he says, though the authorities are still to verify some of these claims. When they do, I say to Selvat, they'll compensate the farmers for their losses. So, he says, if I smash your microphone once we've finished the interview and say, don't worry, I'll pay you for it, that'll be all right then, will it? Down in the foothills, Alain Rennes, the head of an association called Bear Country, shows me the place the last three Slovenian bears were released into their new French mountain home. Rennes is lobbying hard so that France's new ecology minister, the environmentalist TV presenter Nicolas Hulot, brings more bears to the Pyrenees, especially to the western part, where there are two males but no females. The reason, he says, is that bears belong here. Tens of thousands of years ago, there were bears in all French forests, he says. Till the mid-19th century, there were bears in all French mountains. And though they were hunted to extinction in the Alps just before World War II, here they hung on till the Slovenian bears came to the rescue. Moi, je pense que c'est pour une raison principale, c'est que euh, les hommes ne voulaient pas les faire disparaître. I believe that the main reason the bear survived was that people wanted it to survive. It had a special place in the culture of these mountains because it was so close to people. It's the only animal in northern countries that can stand up like people, the only one whose footprints look like human footprints and which has paws like human hands. Female bears have teats on their lower bellies, like most mammals, but also on their chests. Sometimes bears sit down, take their young on their knees and breastfeed them just like women. There are myths and legends here where bears are sometimes the descendants of a bad-tempered man who was banished to the wilderness, and sometimes it's the other way round. Bears are the ancestors of people. Alain Rennes says that if flocks are protected by shepherds and trained Patu mountain dogs as they were in the old days, the bears stay away. But that, say the farmers, is just another myth about the bear. In the wet green hills above the medieval town of Foix, Eric Fournier has just brought his sheep down from their summer pastures in the mountains. It's like an army back from a battle, he says. A number of his animals are injured. He shows me one swiped by a bear's claw, others that survived being chased over a cliff. We built log cabins last year so the bears could see we were there, so that they could smell us too. We hired two shepherds and bought protection dogs. We thought we'd found the solution. That year we only had five attacks and lost only 17 sheep. But this year we've had 50 attacks, at least 40 sheep killed, and the bears killed both of our protection dogs. Until last year we thought we knew what to do about the bears. Not anymore. That report from John Lawrenson. A key deadline is looming for Brexit Britain. The British government has until Monday to finalise its offer on three key issues. The Irish border, a financial settlement and the rights of EU citizens living in Britain. The EU's 27 members will then decide whether sufficient progress has been made to move on to the next phase of the talk. So has Britain's offer gone far enough? This week on 
News Hour Extra, Owen Bennett-Jones and a panel of guests discuss the state of the Brexit negotiations. What will it take for them to advance and what happens if they do not? What sticking points remain and would Britain walk away from the talks if its position is rejected? That's all on News Hour Extra. A reminder of our top story this hour, President Trump's former National Security Advisor, Michael Flynn, has pleaded guilty to lying to the FBI over alleged Russian interference in the US elections. James Grimaldi of the Wall Street Journal told us that the uh, guilty plea might indicate some kind of plea bargain. By letting him off easy with a relatively lenient uh, guilty plea, there is a great expectation that he's provided some evidence, possibly testimony, maybe documents that would implicate surely other bigger fish in the Trump White House. Otherwise, I don't think you would see just a single charge today. One of the headlines this hour, there have been violent protests across Honduras ahead of the presidential election result uh, being announced. We'll talk more about that in a few minutes. This is Julian Marshall with News Hour from the BBC World Service. It wasn't so long ago that there were fears that Lebanon could be sucked into the proxy war between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Those fears have now receded, but there is a more immediate threat to the health of the nation. Huge piles of burning garbage across the country. New York-based Human Rights Watch has been investigating the problem and speaking to communities living next to the dumps. It burns for two to three days, and then they dump again. When they burn the trash, I lose my breath, and so I have to use an inhaler. My daughter also has to take these medications. The trash is causing physical and psychological trauma. So what was happening to the garbage before it was being dumped and burnt like this? Bassam Kawaja is the author of the Human Rights Watch report. This is actually a decades-long problem. Uh, Lebanon's garbage crisis sprang into the international limelight in 2015 uh, when existing waste management uh, plans inside the capital Beirut broke down and garbage literally started piling up in the streets in, in what became known as a river of garbage. And so that's really what prompted Human Rights Watch to start looking into the, the health impact of this crisis. And we really found that this was just the tip of the iceberg, that actually... Uh, other parts of the crisis, such as open burning of waste, which is a dangerous and avoidable practice, have been going on for decades across the country. And right now, there's more than 150 dumps uh, that are being burned uh, every single week. Who's doing the burning? Uh, municipalities deny doing it. They say that it's random people doing it. But when you have a consistent amount of burning going on every single week, that, you know, of course, is very questionable. Your report is entitled, As If You're Inhaling your death. So the fumes being given off by the burning of this garbage are, are very toxic, are they? It's well documented that open burning household waste, and specifically things like plastic, um, releases dangerous toxin into the air that can have uh, potentially serious health effects. They've been linked uh, to cancer, to heart disease, to respiratory problems, and to skin conditions. But then we also went out into the field uh, and spoke with about 100 uh, residents living near the dumps, uh, to doctors who were treating them, to government officials, and to environmental experts that have been dealing with this problem for a long time. 
and they were told that they have respiratory issues, they have asthma, they wake up coughing at night. You alluded to those protests back in 2015 against uh, the accumulation of the garbage. Did those protests fizzle out? When the garbage crisis reached the capital of Beirut, it did spark a massive protest movement under the banner You Stink uh, that really had people crowding down downtown Beirut. Uh, what the government's response is really focused on, on not putting together a plan to deal with the root of the problem, but another cosmetic fix. And so they were able to move the garbage outside of the streets of Beirut. And what we found in our reporting is that actually open burning of waste is disproportionately affecting or disproportionately occurring in, in lower income areas. And so you really do see this this socioeconomic aspect of this crisis as well. The government has only focused their efforts in the capital and in the areas where rich and powerful people exist. Do you have a solution to this uh, accumulating garbage? So this is really a manufactured crisis, and it's, it's a result of the government's failure to really take this issue seriously or to put any effort into it. The vast majority of Lebanon's waste, almost 90% of it, could either be recycled or composted. Yet at the moment, about 80%, uh, the vast majority of it, is either being uh, landfilled or open dumped, and some of that is now being burned. Uh, and so certainly there are real solutions to this problem, and we see some amazing private initiatives where people are actually stepping into the shoes that the government should be occupying to, to play some of these roles, to provide recycling options. So certainly the government could uh, be putting in place a solution to this if they actually wanted to. That was Bassam Kawaja from Human Rights Watch in Lebanon. There have been violent protests across Honduras ahead of the expected announcement of the presidential election result. Our Central America correspondent, Will Grant, joins us live. And, uh, Will, there's been loss of life. Yes, I mean, it, it's turned into uh, quite a messy situation on the streets of both Tegucigalpa uh, and one of the other main cities, San Pedro Sula. Um, it, the, the, the election itself is in great dispute. Um, the challenger, a former sports reporter, Salvador Nazarala, appeared to be 5% ahead. He was already celebrating, saying he uh, had won the election. Let's not forget that this election took place on Sunday. Um, and then the vote count became held up and it was a problem and it was taking more and more time. There was a technical glitch. Uh, and now, with just um, a few hours expected before the final announcement is made, um, the incumbent president, uh, Juan Orlando Hernández, is fractionally in the lead. Uh, and, of course, Mr. Nasrallah's supporters are on the streets um, and, and very angry about what they consider to be manipulation by the electoral authorities. Um, is this the way that elections are normally conducted in Honduras? Well, it, it is uh, a confused one. I mean, that w what really this stems from is the fact that the constitution was changed um, just a couple of years ago to allow the sitting president to stand for a re-election. This is the first time that that's happened since the constitution was changed. And of course, you'll remember it was only eight years ago that there was a coup in Honduras. So there's a lot of bad feeling around. Uh, and certainly uh, Salvador Nazarala and his supporters think that the constitution should never have been uh, changed in the first place. That the, that the incumbent should never have been allowed to stand for, for re-election. So I can't actually see them kind of leaving the streets uh, unless in a couple of hours' time their man is declared the winner, which doesn't look like it's going to happen. Um, any attempts at uh, mediation or intervention from uh, regional groupings? Right, absolutely. So, I mean, you've got the international observers there 
uh, anyway, who are trying to bring some form of order to what has been a very, very chaotic and confused and messy vote count. Uh, And you have two main groups, I would say. One is the Organization of American States calling for calm. The other is the Catholic Church, who are playing trying to quite a prominent role, trying to bring people off the streets, trying to get both sides to recognize the result. Um, But it's one of those situations where, for example, the challenger, Mr. Nasrallah, has said he would recognize the result, no matter what it was, when he was 5% ahead. And then there was this confusion. Now he's saying he was sort of backed into a corner by the electoral authorities. It is very messy. It's not been well handled. And I think ordinary Hondurans, probably on both sides of the political divide, are, are very upset with the way it's been handled. I mean, it wouldn't be beyond belief to think that the whole thing might have to be reheld at some point. It's that bad at, this, uh, at, at the present moment. Or possibly, will the military intervening again, very briefly? Well, yes, absolutely. That's always a worry when it comes to Honduras. They're very, very powerful, um, as they are in all Central American countries. And as I say, it wasn't so long ago they played a very important role, a military coup. You know, that's the last thing that most people in Honduras would want to see. Will, many thanks. That was our Central America correspondent, Will Grant. And uh, that's it from this edition of NewsR from me, Julian Marshall, and the rest of the team in London. Goodbye. News Hour has been a download from the BBC. To discover more and our terms of use, visit bbc.com/podcasts.